Welcome to an episode of Find Your Voice, a movement led by yours truly, Aaron Dew, a guy who has overcome crippling anxiety, adversity, and difficulty like so many of you in life, whose main goal now is to help you combat your excuses, take control of your life, write your own story, and most importantly, find your voice. So now, without further ado, I welcome the host of the show himself, Mr. Aaron Dew. What's going on, people? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Find Your Voice. My name is Aaron, and as always, I am the host of the show. So before you get panicky and you start to think, oh my God, this episode, it's 90 minutes, just hold your horses. I am not in the business of giving you guys stuff that isn't going to serve you, I promise you. I have tried so hard to condense this podcast into the smallest possible amount of time but there were so many nuggets that Anthony shares on this episode that I just feel it would be unfair that having listened to it and realized how much it helped me that I just didn't share it with yourself so please even if you've got to spread this episode over two days three days even four days it's worth it because Anthony Bennett is an incredible human being and he's somebody who is considered the miracle man, but he's just somebody who has so much self-awareness. And as you start to hear his story, we can probably come to some sort of conclusion that maybe it was the circumstances that made him become that person. But I'm so grateful he has become that person because he has taught me a lot. Just in this very short interview, is very short to me because I could have spoken to him for hours and hours on end. So normally I like to give an introduction, but this time I'm going to jump straight into it. And thank you once again for all of your support. Do not forget to leave a review at the end of this and do not forget to follow Anthony on his journey. Let's get the show on the way. Okay, so today we have Anthony Bennett on the show, who some of you actually may recognize as the Miracle Man. So Anthony, how are we doing today? I am super duper today. Thanks for asking. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. So myself and Anthony just had a very, very brief conversation. I actually had to stop him midway because he was dropping some amazing nuggets of wisdom. And I said, save it for the show. Save it for our listeners. And also, just before I begin, I want to thank our guest on episode 47, Winston, who recommended Anthony to myself. Yeah, big up, Winston. Absolutely, for putting this together. But for anyone who doesn't know Anthony's story, now, obviously, I've had to research it as a host of Find Your Voice. It's a story that it makes the hairs on your arms literally raise. And you're thinking, wow, this guy literally is a miracle man. So, Anthony, I know your story to some extent. Obviously, I want to learn it a lot more throughout this episode. But for the listeners, could you maybe give us a bit of a background maybe just growing up and stuff but then more into what made you become this miracle man yeah sure i think that's the hardest question to ask is tell us a bit about yourself it's the question where do i take it so growing up born and raised in west london come from quite a big family in total i've got four sisters two brothers i was and still am a humongous eminem fan a big fan of oranges as well a bit random okay <laughs> and <laughs> So to give you a bit of my story in a nutshell, so I felt extremely ill after returning from a school trip to Disneyland Paris in 2006. Mm. It put me in hospital on a life support machine, not to give too much away, but it was very touch and go. My parents were told that, you know, I'm not going to make it through the night. They might want to start thinking about funeral arrangements. I had to be resuscitated and brought back to life 12 times. I had to relearn everything from scratch, mm. um, from movement to balance, to walking again, to talking again. And now I spend, you know, my career job is to inspire people. So I travel all areas of the UK and parts of the world, speaking with different audiences from primary school pupils from the age of, say, year threes, 
all the way to, you know, Harvard professionals right. and everybody in between. So that's sort of the the before, a bit during and a bit after, but I am sure we're going to dig into the, the details. Before we obviously jump into kind of like the adversity side, big up to Eminem as well, because I am still a massive, massive Eminem fan. So it's nice to know you have some good taste in music. Oranges, not so much, but um, the wife... Be careful what you say about the oranges. The wife loves them, so I'll give you that one as well. But even at that age, Disneyland, obviously we're going there. We're excited. It's a nice place. It's a place that you see on the television and you're thinking this is going to be a nice experience. And then you've just come out off the back of that where your parents are now having to potentially arrange the funeral arrangements. What was you going through in that moment? I mean, was you in a capacity where you could actually think or was you literally bedridden and not feeling anything? So going back to Disneyland itself, so it was the best school trip ever because it was me, my, like myself, my friends mm-hmm. abroad, no parents, we was having like a really good time. Mm-hmm. And then out of the blue, I started to feel a little bit weird and sort of disorientated, but I thought I was dehydrated. So I drank more water and this feeling, it kept coming and going and coming and going. So I just tried my best to ignore it. So then we were on the coach driving back in England when all of a sudden the coach started to swerve across all lanes of the motorway. Kids were flying everywhere and we thought we were going to crash. Then out of the blue, the driver pulled onto the hard shoulder, slammed on the brakes. Everyone went flying forward. He stood up and then he ran off the coach. So we were so confused thinking, what the heck is going on? So that we ran to the window and a coach driver was outside and he just began to throw up everywhere. Um, so we had another driver come to collect us and take us back to school, but we thought nothing of it. So the next morning was a school day and I felt sick. I had a headache, cold, sweaty palms, no energy. I went to school anyway and only three people showed up to class and we were talking about how sick we all felt. So we got sent home that day and again, we didn't think too much of it. The next morning I woke up and I couldn't make any sense of what I was saying or I couldn't really understand what people were saying. I could just hear words being said, but I couldn't make any sense of it. So my mom, she thought I was on drugs. She thought I was playing a prank on her. So I was just acting very weird. Mm. So then she noticed that my feet had turned blue and I was finding it hard to breathe. So I got rushed to my local hospital and that's when they took the x-ray of my chest and they told my dad sort of there and then, your son is extremely ill and his only chance of survival is if we could find him a special life support machine called ECMO. Now, in 2006, there were only four hospitals in the UK that had an ECMO life support machine. Luckily for me, Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital in London had the last available machine. Mm-hmm. So I was transferred to Great Ormond Street, blue lights the whole way, and that's where I spent the next seven weeks of my life. Wow. And just before we obviously we delve into that side, you said that only a certain number of people came into school. Was this sort of like an epidemic then was everyone going through the same thing that you were going through or was yours exclusive and they were experiencing some other type of bug so what it was they they narrowed it down the medical experts they thought it came from the air conditioning within the coach right because we were all breathing in this bad air the driver obviously was the first person to get sick um but everybody else just fell sick too but everybody caught maybe one infection which they recovered from you know over the course of a couple of days one other person went to hospital stayed overnight then they were back home but with me, I caught multiple infections. Mm. So it was just really attacking my body. And I was just deteriorating at such a fast rate that they had to really act fast because my lungs were completely infected. That's why my feet turned blue, because not enough oxygen was getting to my feet and not enough oxygen was getting to my brain. So I was acting a bit doolally. And that's the symptoms that was that I was showing at the time. Wow. I mean, you painted a brilliant picture there, obviously. of It's almost like a scene from a movie. The whole life 
as being a movie. If I can get in touch with a director and a producer, I'm sure it'll hit Blockbuster. Yeah, make sure you get me in there as well, please, as an expert. Yeah, man, we'll get a little camera. <laughs> no worries. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously this infection has come from the air conditioning and the thing that makes your story so unique is that you had, was it three or four viral infections at once, not just the one? So I caught strep pneumonia, influenza B+, and staphylococcus all at the same time. Now, to catch one of these is quite bad. To catch two at the same time, terrible. To catch three, they just didn't think I was going to pull through because they were sort of working with each other to attack my body. So my lungs were just completely not not working. So the job of this life support machine called ECMO, it stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Mm -hmm. And they insert a big tube, probably about half a meter long, and it goes to the side of your neck, through your artery, down to your stomach and it pumps the blood out of your body oxygenates it and passes it back through your body so it keeps your blood oxygenated so it gives your lungs a chance to heal um for me to be on that machine in a children's hospital the doctors and nurses are used to treating babies so for a six foot two 16 year old to come into great Ormond street you have to use the machine in a different way so a lot of the medical staff had to go on like an emergency course to understand you know how to equip a big human being to a machine like that um even the fact that the bed that i was laying in was a child's bed so my feet were hanging off the edge so they had to get a bed extender to sort of have my feet on the bed mm. and this machine was the size of well it covered the whole my my whole bay so i had machines from my left behind me my right um my bed was taped off so you couldn't stand over the yellow tape when i first got to the hospital where they didn't know what i had People had to wear gloves, masks, because they thought I had Legionnaire's disease. They didn't know how contagious it was. So they had to act really fast, do a lot of biopsies to try and figure out what it was that I had and how they can treat me. That's incredible. I just want to also just acknowledge the work that the staff have just done there and what an incredible service that is, because I think sometimes, especially the NHS or the healthcare system, don't always get the acknowledgement that they deserve. And in that moment there, obviously, if it wasn't for everyone putting together there, then obviously we, we wouldn't probably be having this conversation today. And I also want to just take it more personal then. So all this is happening around, you know, you're 16 years old. You probably heard people say, this is an emergency. Something needs to happen here. What's going on in your head at that precise time? Are you actually thinking, okay, I'm going to die. And if you are, what are your thoughts there? I mean, I can't even try and comprehend that. So I want to try and get into your mind, if you wouldn't mind trying to paint that picture for us. Sure. So at the beginning state, where I was not getting enough oxygen, I was very confused. So I was still able to speak, but reality kept sort of um, warping around me. So how to explain that? When my dad took me to hospital, we sat in my local hospital at first and I was in the waiting room. And I remember I was dripping with sweat and I felt very sleepy and I was looking around and my mind started to play games with me. So anybody that I gave direct eye contact to and they looked back at me, voices in my head would start to say, they think you're faking it, right. that you're just trying to cut the queue to get seen first. And I could see them turning to each other and pointing at me and sort of saying all these bad words about me. So I felt very sort of trapped within myself. So I remember turning to my dad saying, dad, no, let's, let's, let's come back tomorrow. And this is me in a very, very bad state telling my dad this. So he's looking at me like, no, we're getting seen today. What was really happening was people were seeing the state I was in because I was falling in and out of consciousness. I was sweating, dripping. So they were just nudging people saying, wow, look at him. He's, he's really, really bad. But my brain just saw it in a whole different way. So then when I got put through to like a cubicle and I was in my bed, I was attached to a lot of machinery, but still I didn't understand what was happening. 
So I was saying, oh, when am I getting to go home? Can we get some pizza? Um, yep, I'm going home tonight whilst I'm being like strapped up to all this machinery. So I was in a place where I didn't quite understand what was happening. Sure. Even the first stages of being in hospital back in Great Ormond Street now, I didn't know how serious it was. I only started to clock on to how serious it was based on who came to visit me. Because when you're sick in hospital, your mum and dad will come and see you, your brothers and sisters, maybe your auntie with a few grapes. But I was getting like second cousins, distant relatives, people I haven't seen since I was young coming to visit me. So I started to think, why are you here? Like, I'm, I'm going home soon. And then I noticed that when my friends came to see me, they were acting very serious. They were like just standing at my bed with a really deadpan face on. And I was thinking, why are you not cracking jokes? Like, why is everyone Absolutely. acting weird around me? So then I started to slowly piece it together. I started to see all these tubes in me and I was thinking, maybe it's not tomorrow that I'm going home. But I never actually understood what was happening to me. I just knew that I was laying down, equipped with all this machinery. I was on a heck of a lot of drugs, you know, so I was on a lot of morphine, which makes you hallucinate. Where I was so, so sick, I was on the highest dose you can give a human being. So I was hallucinating a lot. I was seeing things that wasn't making sense. I saw, for example, a brick come flying through the window. I heard the smash. It slid across the floor. And then I saw people in hoodies climbing through the window saying, where's Ant? He's got the morphine. Let's find him. Let's find him. So there was a doctor putting my medical equipment under my blankets like he was trying to hide it. So I remember trying to lift up my blankets and yeah, put some here, put some here, hide it, hide it. What was really happening was I was getting transferred to go to surgery. So they were putting my equipment onto my bed to wheel me down the corridor. But my brain just came up with this whole different narrative mm. and told me that was happening. And it took me sort of a little while to understand that wasn't real. So my reality was just very sort of jumping from one place to another. So I didn't quite understand what was really happening and what wasn't happening. So that was kind of tricky, especially for my mum, because at one point I was screaming at my mum, mum, the nurse, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to put the drugs into my drink. Mum, mum, mum. And where your son is extremely ill, you know, and you're being told that the nurse is trying to kill you. As a mum, she was thinking, are they? Mm. So she started to like run up to the nurses. What's happening? What are you doing? So they had to sit my parents down and say, you know, Anthony's on a lot of medication. He may be talking a lot of waffles, so don't take everything personal. You know, we're trying to help him. We're not trying to kill him. He's in safe hands. So it was, it was quite, it was, it was a hard time for both me and my family because we saw it from different perspectives. I saw it from the inside looking out and they saw it from the outside looking in on what was happening. And to be honest with you, I think my family and my, especially my mom went through more than what I did because I didn't see it from the outside looking in. I just saw myself laying down, looking up. And I'd be asleep, I'd wake up and then I'd have like a, a trachea, which is where you have a, a hole inserted in the bottom of your throat, which you breathe from. So I didn't know what was happening. I just woke up and there it was. Whereas my mum would have the conversations. She'll be told, Do you know what, we don't think he's going to make it through the night. She was told, we're going to try this, we're going to keep trying. So she's on a whole roller coaster of emotions. Whereas I was just laying there, sort of just everything happening to me. Absolutely. I think I'd probably agree that obviously your mum all the people on the outside probably had it worse in terms of ignorance was a bliss for you to some extent yeah. so obviously not knowing the full extent of it yes you were disorientated yes you were trying to comprehend your thoughts and it was all muddled and stuff obviously at that point not knowing this the seriousness of what was actually happening probably kept you going for a little bit longer because that can almost crumble someone as well I mean I like to think I'm in a much better place in terms of my mindset now but if somebody told me at the age of 16 17 okay, you're about to die now and then you've recognised all these tubes. I'm not sure how much resilience or how much strength I would have to 
really fight that. It's one of those situations I don't think anyone really knows the answer until you're, you're put in that position. Is it yeah. a fight, flight, freeze kind of moment? So that's really interesting. Was you in actual any pain at this moment or obviously were the drugs helping with that? The drugs helped a lot, you know. Um, just the simple fact that I had so many tubes, so much happening to my body, but I didn't feel the pain. Mm. Yeah, I'd say the only pain I did have, which I physically felt, was all the cannulas that I kept um, having. So all the injections where they would have to insert a new line to give me more drugs. My veins kept collapsing and closing, so they would have to sort of take out the line and put it in a different place. I'm not a fan of needles, but I had about between three and maybe six lines inserted daily, just when my veins kept closing. And say if you've got a drip and it's dripping through and your veins open, it just goes through nice and flush. Sometimes you can feel the cold solution going through your veins. But then when your vein starts to close, it's like you start to feel pain where the, the drip's going through. And as soon as I felt a little bit of pain, I knew, oh man, my vein's closing up they're going to have to give me another injection. And that sort of put me on a downer. And sometimes they'd have like half the drip bag full still. And I'd be like, please, can that just, the whole bag, please just go through the drip into my body. Yeah. So at least they could just finish it off. But then halfway through, the pain would become so unbearable. And bearing the fact that at this point, I was super ultra thin. Where my white blood cells reduced to zero, it was hard for my body to fight infections. So the nutrients and minerals in my muscle tissue were fighting these infections, trying to keep me alive. Mm. So I lost a lot of weight within a couple of days. And then with that, I was so weak, I couldn't turn my head from left to right. I couldn't lift up my arms. I was pretty much just paralyzed looking up day in, day out. So to have a drip and then you're starting to feel that pain because you can't move. It's like, for example, when you hear when someone goes blind, the hearing enhances. So my sense of feeling and touch enhance because... I couldn't move. I, I could just pay focus to where I could feel things on my body. Yeah. So it got me quite depressed knowing that the line was, you know, my vein was going to close. So I went through sort of ups and downs mentally throughout hospital, uh, just based on me being aware that I was going to go through a bit more pain or I had to have this happen now. So, and I, I take my hat off to, like you said earlier, all the medical professions no, because again, they get to see the rawness of life. Of course. Sites that a lot of humans don't ever get to see. And they get to see this in, you know, every single day. You know, for, so for them to fight through and push through and keep showing up for work and, you know, helping people, that's an amazing thing to do, full stop. Absolutely. No matter if you're the cleaner, no matter if you're the surgeon or anybody in between, if you show up to work and you're there to help people, yeah. then, you know, massive congratulations. And a lot of these nurses, they go through a lot of mental health as well. Mm. You know, one of the nurses, when I was in my local hospital, after I went through sort of like a really low dip, she had to go to her car and just have a little cry and have a cigarette because it was a lot for her to deal with. She had a son that was similar age to me. So she was thinking, wow, what if this happened to my son? You know, and my mum and this woman become, you know, good friends and they helped each other. Just because they're the medical profession, they still got feelings, you know, they still need that hug. They still need that okay or you know keep going you're doing this for the right reason just having my mom saying no we need you you know people need you the work you're doing is helping to save lives mm. you know so just a quick shout out to every single person that's either going through medical school yeah. or out the other end of you know been in it for 20 years plus you know you're making that huge positive ripple that's changing and helping to save lives absolutely 100 percent. i'm actually so so glad you said that so my own mother she was a nurse as well and she suffered with chronic depression herself recently and i think it's such a selfless service that 
these professionals do that they're giving they're giving they're giving 24 7 that sometimes they forget to actually take something back for themselves as well and they yeah. almost forget that self-love aspect because they're trying to save the world so i think that's probably is the causations of why some of them do end up with mental health because they're not obviously protecting their own mental health so definitely i think a massive acknowledgement yeah. to all of these people and if i may anthony just something that i, I suppose i'm intrigued by and i hope the listeners obviously will be as well when I was going through and, and researching you, because this story was just fascinating, you were resuscitated 12 times, right? So yeah. I'm assuming that is literally you've gone and then all of a sudden they brought you back to life. Yes. Could you explain any of that? Do you remember any of that process? I mean, is it like what they say on the movies where your whole life flashes before you or you see a white light? I mean, is there anything that you can give us? All right. So the first thing I want to say is people ask me, what is it like on the other side? Yeah. And to answer that question, I don't answer that question. Reason being, like I said, I was on a lot of medication. I was on medication that made me hallucinate, see things. So if I was to tell people, yeah, I saw this or I felt that or this is how it's going to be. And then when people get to that stage, you know, and it's not that, I don't want their ghost to come and haunt me because <laughs> I, I painted the picture of it's going to be like that. Yeah. Um, but I remember when I was about to leave Great Ormond Street, one of the ECMO coordinators um, asked me if I had any questions. And I said, yeah, how ill was I? You know, I, I don't know what happened to me. How ill was I? And they said, oh, um, well, it's pretty touch and go with you. And I wasn't understanding what she was saying. So I was like, touch what and go where? Mm. And she was like, no, we nearly lost you a few times. And I still wasn't getting it. I was like, lost me. I've been in this bed the whole time. You know where I am. And then she looked at my mum, and I, I just saw the look that they gave each other. And I thought, what's going on here? Mm. And she said, no, we actually, you know, we had to bring you back to life. You, you died on us a couple of times and I was like what how many times so they said let's take you down to ICU intensive care and you can speak to the team and they can let you know sort of any questions you have they can give you the answer so I went down spoke to the team and I said guys I've got a question I heard that I died and you brought me back I just wanted to know how many times and then I remember there's a guy and he said oh all right Mr Bennett you want to ask that question like team <laughs> huddle 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 Ants asked how many times did he die so someone put their hand up and said, well, I remember resuscinating him twice. And then someone else put a hand up. Yep, yeah, me three times. And like, it was just going around the room wow. and people just throwing up numbers. And then they said like three, seven, yeah, the, the, the. and they got to 12. And they said, well, there's some people that aren't in today. There's some people that are on break and they may have as well. So we'll just call it 12. Wow. I couldn't believe it. I just thought to myself, and the first thing I thought to myself, and this is like the honest truth. Yeah. 50 Cent got shot nine times. Mm. I died 12 times. I wait to go back to school and tell everybody this. <laughs> but I was just in a state where I didn't connect with how serious it was, what I was going through. Mm. And when it really, really clicked was when I got back home. I remember my dad carried me upstairs because I was still quite weak. I couldn't walk properly. Um, opened my bedroom door and all my friends and family were in my room cheering, aunt's home, jumping on me. And it just felt so good to be home. And then my dad disappeared from the room. So I asked my mum where's dad, went to the other room and he was there just standing at the window, just staring out and he stayed frozen. And then he started to turn around and that's when it hit me hard because that was the first time in my entire life I've ever seen my dad cry. And I remember my mum asking him, why are you crying? And he said, I'm just so happy I've got my son back. And when he said that, that's when it all clicked. And that's when I started to realise, well, this ain't a joke. Like I nearly didn't exist anymore. And now I'm here. And that's when I started to really start to think, why am I here? Who was involved in helping me be here? So in my mind, I started making a list of all the people that was involved. 
doctors, nurses, surgeons, nutritionists, anaesthetists, cleaners, they came twice a day to clean around my bed to make sure there was no bacteria because I was so ill, bacteria from my bed would have killed me. The cleaners helped save my life. Every single person, no matter how big or small their role was, they played an incredible part in helping me get life back. So that's one of the messages that I take home with me when I speak to the audiences is the power of teamwork. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I'm only just this, or I'm just that. Nobody is just anything. If you're part of a team, your role is very, very important. And without you being part of that team, the whole structure can collapse. You know, so everybody, you know, you have to really recognize the bigger picture of what you're doing, not just the tasks that you do, but how is your work or what you're doing impacting other people? Absolutely. I love that message. Nobody is just anything. And I just want to quickly just rewind ever so slightly to where you saw your dad and he was frozen. And obviously that's where it clicked for you. What was your emotions like in that particular moment? I was stunned. I, I, I didn't know how to react at first because, you know, do I go and hug my dad? Do I sort of like just give him time? Mm-hmm. You know, my dad's like a big guy, two gold teeth. Like, he doesn't <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So I was shocked. And then, you know, we just gave him a bit of time. He sort of um, wiped the tears, breathed a bit. And then we just had like, like a hug. We hugged out. And then we said that we're leaving for a bit. We're going to other room. And just when he's ready to come and join us all, you know, come through. Mm. But it just helped me understand that I think it's one of those things, especially with men, we don't like to be seen as a person that cries or it's, it's a sign of weakness. Yeah. But that just showed me that it's okay. You know, you've got to let your emotions out. If you're feeling something, let it out. Let your body experience that feeling, just that outburst, whatever it is, get it out, recompose yourself. And then you go back to what you need to do. You know, if you keep it all contained, it can explode at any random time. You know, and that's something that I learned coming out of hospital was just to allow my body to experience experiences and emotions. When I'm angry, it's, it's allowed me to be more self-aware. Yeah. When I'm angry, I stop myself and I'm like, right, this is anger. What is it to me? Okay, I'm noticing that my stomach's tensing up more. I've noticed that my, my vision is becoming a bit more sort of tunneled and sort of daggery. So then I say, so I wonder how long it will take me to become happy again. So just as a quick example, I remember I was driving one day and the satnav told me to take the third exit on a, motor, on a roundabout. I accidentally took the second. It led me onto a motorway with lots of traffic and it took me a good 20 minutes to turn around and get back to that roundabout again. And that's when I felt anger. And I told myself, how can I get around this? Right, let me put on some Eminem. Let me rap along to some music <laughs> and see it. if I can get myself into a happy place. And it took me a song and a half. And then I felt myself relaxed again. Okay, I can get myself out of it. I've just got to channel my thoughts into a different place and just keep exploring that different place. And then like my body will calm down and I just experience my body going through different things. So now like when I feel my emotions, I really take time to analyze what's happening to my body. If I'm enjoying it, I let it freely flow. If I'm not enjoying it, I structure how I'm going to change it or what I need to think about or what I need to do to get around that. So it's allowed me to slow down in life going through what I went through. I love that. Again, you're touching on something that is so, so important. And I think more people are getting used to hearing about it and trying to obviously develop it themselves. But that's self-awareness. Self-awareness is so, so key. And and the fact that you can be self-aware when you're feeling a state of anger or something that maybe isn't how you want to be or isn't serving you in the right way. So I think that's definitely an important message. So thank you for sharing that. And I just want to then move the story forward, if I may, just ever so slightly. So you're in this place now where you can't afford to get any infections now. And having read your story, and I know this from you, you had to learn pretty much everything from scratch again. 
And I can't, yeah. I can't imagine, firstly, what that's going to be like from a physical standpoint. So I'm just thinking, even if we just use an easy example, when people first go to the gym, it's very difficult. You're picking up stuff. You're trying to get your body coordinated and you're trying to facilitate yeah. all that movement. What you've had to go through, and I want you to obviously explain it rather than me just ramble on, but you've had to literally learn the basics that people have to do as a child. What was that like, not just physically, but also mentally for yourself? It's like they pressed the reset button on my life. Wow. You know, my... My brain and my body were disconnected because my brain knows how to walk. I've been walking my whole life. My body physically couldn't. Wow. So there's two ways I could take it. I could either go down the, why is this happening to me? Why can't I? Why can't I? Or I could say, right, how can I do this? Yeah. And the first things I had to learn was to make a fist. So I had to learn how to make a tight fist and then to touch my fingertip to my nose. And just the thought of, how heavy my arm is mm. it's just a skeleton but it felt like the weight of an elephant's leg just to lift it up and try to bring it to my nose it was shaking it was going left and right like it was like it was um i wasn't in full control of it it's like i had maybe 30 40 percent control of where my finger was moving to and that's sort of like pin the tail on a donkey and try yeah. to my best aim for my nose and then when i touched my nose i got that slight buzz of i did it yes i did it and that made me feel good so then i like the challenge of I wonder if I could do it again or what else I could do. So I went down a route of what they call post-traumatic growth, where it's like I've become best friends with the voices in my head and I kept cheering myself along the way. I love that. So I then had to learn how to sit up by myself. And being in hospital, it really, it made me feel low because I couldn't do anything. Like, for example, if my bed, if they tilted it up slightly, so I was at an angle, throughout the course of the day, I would slowly slide down my bed and I couldn't shuffle myself to get back up. So nurses would have to come two or three and lift me up. And I felt worthless because, well, I can't even shuffle myself to get comfortable. Yeah. So when I had to learn how to um, sit up again, it really hurt my back. And I had to sort of really balance and think, whoa, I'm swaying, stay still, stay still. And they told me, you know, every wobble that I make is good for my back because it's allowing my muscles to contract and expand and to strengthen. So when I heard that, I wanted to sit up for half an hour. My back would be killing me, but I knew that it was strengthening my back. So I pushed myself to the limits, to the point where I couldn't bear it anymore. Then I'd down again. Then five minutes later, I'd want to sit back up because I wanted to get better so much. And then the more I was focusing on all the little things, the more the doctors would come in, analyze me and say, oh, you don't need that tube no more. Is it okay if we take out that? And I'd be like, yeah, please take it. I hope you Love get your seat. I don't want it no more. <laughs> yeah. And that encouraged me more and more and more. So then when I started to walk again, I could walk maybe two steps and I remember my feet would be dragging along the floor, facing inwards. And I'll be thinking to myself, I know how to walk. Why is it like this? Yeah. And I'd pay attention to the details. Okay, let me try straighten out my leg. Let me lift it rather than dragging it and place it back down. So then I'll do four steps. And then I'll tell myself, right, we're not going to jump to five. We're going to jump to seven. So then I'll do seven. And then again, I'll get that body buzz that I did it, I did it. And I kept encouraging myself. So then I went on this whole treadmill of just wanting to keep bettering myself in every aspect. I saw more machinery getting removed from me. And I just felt like I was breaking free and becoming myself again. And again, the, the medical team, my family cheered me on. Like when they came to visit me, like, whoa, you're walking a lap around the ward now. Look at the progress you've made. And that as well helped me and encouraged me a lot. So having that support network around me and just believing in myself within my mind yeah. really helped me just along that journey to sort of better and pick myself up. And not dwell on it as a bad experience, but as an experience where I'm learning more about myself. Mm. If I'm being completely transparent and honest here, I actually thought it would have been 
a lot more difficult because again I'm probably thinking about myself in that situation I would have probably had more of a victim mentality i.e why does this have to happen to me and I think that's kind of why I obviously I do this show is because I've changed that narrative now not just in my own story and I want to change it for other people so I think it's beautiful that you had that victor mentality should we call it where you were actually friends with yourself and you went through this post-traumatic growth where the voices in your head were actually encouraging you on in order to do amazing things and that's probably what got you to literally where you are today and just hearing that story of having to make a fist and then just moving our fingertip to our nose. I mean, I'm doing it now as I'm actually speaking to you. And I can't even comprehend. I mean, you, you call it an elephant's leg at that point. So yeah, it's the first thing I could think of. <laughs> no, absolutely. But it makes sense because we can all imagine, obviously, the weight of an elephant's leg. But I'm here now. My hands are moving in all sorts of directions. And even that would have probably been so, so difficult for you. But I just, I acknowledge you for your mindset there. And maybe it was, like you said, when you were in hospital and feeling almost worthless in terms of you couldn't, contribute to yourself getting better and you were relying on nurses you then when you did have that opportunity kudos to you for taking that and embracing it and saying actually now I'm going to make myself stronger and obviously that's brought you to where you are now so uh, we definitely need to try and get this out there because I think if, if there was a film made on this it inspires so so many people so uh, thank you for sharing that buddy I appreciate that yeah, pleasure. Pleasure. and just segue in ever so slightly then so now you're in a position and I've seen you now you're walking you're, you're looking healthy you're looking great now and you're doing some incredible things. Having gone through everything you've gone through now, what's your daily routine like? Have you changed that? And do you think, sorry, I'm adding another question in here. Do you think what you're doing now would be something that you always wanted to do or would have done? Or do you think it's the circumstances that happened? So my biggest fear in the whole world was speaking in front of people. So school, college, university, I didn't enjoy being the center of attention. Naturally, I'm quite introvert. I like spending time in my thoughts. I'd like to be an audience listening and paying attention to my surroundings and what's happening. So one day I got a phone call randomly from Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital Charity. And they said, hi, Anthony, how are you doing? We were just wondering, would you like to share your story with Morgan Stanley? And at the age I was at, I didn't have a clue who Morgan Stanley <laughs> were. Yeah. And for all the listeners out there that don't know who Morgan Stanley are, they are a humongous company that do investment banking globally. They are huge i thought morgan stanley was two people <laughs> yeah. morgan and stanley. stanley so i said yeah sure no worries who else is going to be there is it just morgan and stanley like how do you want to do this <laughs> and they said oh no 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 no. there's going to be 400 people there it's a big charity event and we want you to be the guest speaker so now my palms are sweating i'm on the phone thinking i can't do this so then i had a choice to make do i say yes or do i say no so i thought to myself right if i say the word no I could say, thank you for the opportunity, but I'm too scared. Um, can you choose someone else? They would have said, yep, sure, no problem. Thanks anyway. I hang up the phone and just carry on my day as normal. If I say the word yes, amazing things could happen. So I thought about it and I said, yeah, do you know what? I'm going to do the talk. So I had a month to prepare. And I remember I wrote like sheet after sheet of my whole story, wrote it down. Then I was like breaking it apart, adding that part. I didn't want it to just be a sad story. I wanted to have funny parts, bits of my sort of, personality in there and I wanted to take the audience on that journey rather than I was just really really sick and I'm really really better thanks for all your help so I put together the talk got to the venue and it was oh my gosh seeing 400 people business suits I don't see myself as a super smart person I'm very ABC one two three so I felt in a way intimidated by all these professional bankers so anyway the lights went down low a man appeared on stage 
And now we have our guest speaker, Anthony Bennett. And everyone started to clap. So I remember being at my table and I just stood up. Everything become a blur and I started to walk towards the stage. And then I looked to my right as I was walking and I saw my best friend. So I grabbed him. I said, bro, you're coming with me. So he came up <laughs> on the stage with me, just standing behind me. Yeah. I sort of like my entourage, like just looking at an audience. If anyone wants to start with, and I've got his back. So then what happened was, as I was walking to the stage, a voice just came to me and said, just one thing. Introduce yourself and then pause for two seconds and just use that two seconds to look around the room. Don't just go up onto the stage and, how many is Anthony Bennett? I was really, really sick now. I'm really, really bad. Thanks. Bye. Just take your time. Pace yourself. So when I introduced myself, I stopped. I looked around the room and I noticed that I was in a safe place. It was okay. No one was sort of like judging me or throwing tomatoes at me. I was standing strong. So the voice said, keep, keep going. So as I was speaking, the voice kept coming to me and it kept saying, right, this is amazing. But what do speakers do? You're standing too still. Speakers, they use their hands. You've got to use your hands when you speak. So I've done an internal countdown. I said, three, two, one. And I started to wiggle my hands around a little bit. And then I noticed that I felt a bit more comfortable and I started to cheer myself on. So then come the end of the talk, I got this big round of applause and it done something to me. It gave me that body buzz that I did it, I did it. And there's a theme, always, through my journey, I'm always getting these body buzzes that, you know, that sense of achievement. And that's what I sort of chase in life. It's like that first achievement of I did it. I want to keep getting that throughout my life. So when I did that. I was thinking to myself, right, why am I feeling so good if this is something that I don't enjoy doing? So I said to Great Ormond Street, if there's any more opportunities, I want to help you raise money for sick children and I want to build my confidence. So they said, sure, we'll give you a shout if anything comes up. So I think a couple of years later, I got another phone call. Hi, Great Ormond Street again. How are you? Just wondering if you'd like to help us win one of our biggest ever charity partnerships worth £7.5 million. And it's with a company called Whitbread. Yeah. So getting that phone call, I'm thinking, whoa, me, £7.5 million, Whitbread. I'm thinking, who are Whitbread? Are they a bakery? Do they make, make bread? <laughs> yeah. Then I'd done my research on Google, saw that they own Costa Coffee, they're in Premier Inn, Beefy to restaurants, a whole range of restaurant brands. So now I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not smart enough. What happens if I mess up? All these sick children are going to miss out on £7.5 million because of me. So that's a lot of pressure. So again, I said to myself, if I say the word no, I can say thank you for such an incredible opportunity but I don't think I'm the guy for the job. I'm not smart enough. And, uh, you know, I just leave it there and I carry on my day as normal. If I say the word yes, amazing things could happen. So again, I said, do you know what? I'm going to go for it. I'm going to help. So myself and a team from Great Ormond Street went to Whitbread. We done the charity pitch. Long story short, the partnership was one. Then I was approached by two of the exec directors at Whitbread. And they said, you know, young man, what are you doing with your life now? I said, well, I've just finished university. I studied media production in Winchester. Now I'm looking for this thing called a, a job. And they said, oh, would you like to come and work with us and help us raise this money? So again, I don't see myself as smart. Uh, corporate world, they use a lot of jargon. They, these are like, important, like smart people. I barely know how to write a structured email. I don't know if I'm the right guy for this. So again, I told myself, if I say the word no, I can shake hands and say, Thank you for like a once in a lifetime opportunity, but I'm not smart enough. No. And then I carry on my days normal. If I say yes, amazing things could happen. I said yes. With saying yes, it took me on a journey where I got to travel the whole of the UK. Now I'm from a London bubble. Mm -hmm. So to me, London is the world. <laughs> yeah. I got to 
ventured out. I got to see how friendly people are up north. I got to see different cultures, ways of living, and it expanded my whole mind. And with that, it gave me a platform to practice speaking. So I was speaking with team members, whether they were housekeepers or people that work within the hotels, the restaurants, middle managers, the senior managers, and different types of audiences. So I started to learn how to best communicate with people on their level. And so going through, <laughs> excuse me, working with Whitbread for just under five years, we raised seven, no, we raised 10 million pounds in total. And it was, just, it was just felt throughout the whole country. You know, just seeing the power of teamwork, people getting involved doing cake sales, cycling from one side of the UK to another, hiring their managers and people having fun, creating memories that last a long time with people they enjoy being around. Whilst raising money that's going towards a brand new wing mm. at Great Ormish to treat 20% more patients. That was an incredible you know, thing to be a part of. So without knowing it, that was sort of building me up in terms of becoming a speaker without me even knowing it. Because once we hit the 7.5 and they hit 10 million, my report made redundant because I guess they no longer needed a charity person because you know they, they completed that mission. I decide, what do I do next with my life? Do I become a web developer, a scuba diver, karate master? <laughs> yeah. But the one thing that kept nagging in my mind was, you love speaking, you love inspiring people. I wonder if I can find a job within a company where I get to inspire people. And I was looking around and I just couldn't find the right thing. Because when I was working at Whitbread, it was free. I got to choose where I got to go. I got to inspire people. I got to use my media skills, doing vlogs and creating videos to share around the company. And it was like the perfect job for me. Mm. I got in there when I was quite young. Stayed there for five years. So that, that become the world that I was used to. That's all I knew. You know, this working 24-7, just working on this partnership to try and raise this money. So I had to make a choice. What do I do next? And people kept telling me, what about your speaking? You know, the inspiring stuff. And I kept thinking to myself, yeah, that's what I care about. That's what I love doing. So I had to make a choice. Do I go down the route of starting my own company and becoming an inspirational speaker? Now, I failed double business. So business i'm not really i don't really i'm not the greatest when it comes to it but i just knew that passion was speaking so i wanted to make it happen now i got a redundancy package small amount of money and i said to myself how long can i survive with this money so i mapped it all out bills and expenses all the stuff and i got three months so i said that's my timeline i said that's my window of opportunity to become a speaker i've only got myself to blame if i mess this up because all it means is I spent too much time watching TV or when I went out with my friends, I should have been at home studying or working on how I was going to create this business. So what I did, I deep dived into it. I locked myself away for the whole weekend. I got a big piece of paper and I started to write down everything I thought I would need to become a speaker. Website, business cards, this, that, the other. Then I made subcategories. Okay, who would I need to contact or how can I make that happen? And it's just this massive spider diagram. And then one thing that I used to be is a person that likes to do everything by myself. That's my idea. So I would make it come to life. I don't want too many people involved in it. What I learned was I needed to start asking for help because asking for help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. So what I did, I went on to LinkedIn. I typed in inspirational, motivational speakers. I saw a name that I've seen speak before. It's a guy called Casper Berry. I repeat that. Casper Berry, incredible speaker. So I just sent him a, uh, a message and I said, hey, Caspar, just want to say I love what you do. I've seen you speak live. You're incredible. I'm going on a speaker journey myself. Got a question. I will travel anywhere in the UK for half an hour of your time. If you're willing to help, please let me know. About 20 minutes later, I got a reply. Hey, Ann, 
absolutely. I live in a place called Milton Keynes. If you're free tomorrow, come around my house and let's have a chat. I was thinking to myself, whoa, <laughs> like how is this guy to invite you around his house? You know, just a bit of advice to anyone listening. If you're trying to find the right person to speak with, try that approach. If you say to someone, I will travel anywhere for half an hour of your time, that makes that person feel really important and special. They're more likely to say yes and give you that time of day, you know, if you're willing to go out of your way, you know, to really you know, spend a little bit of time with them. So that's what really, really helped me. So when I went around his house, he asked me, like, that 30 minutes turned into three hours. We become really great friends. And he asked me a question that changed everything for me. He said, how much would you charge for your talks? Now, when I went to Whitbread, I wasn't charging for my talks. I was just working. I got my monthly wage and that was that. So I didn't know how much I was worth or how much I should ask for. And where I've not come from a place of money, to me, a little bit of money is a lot of money. And it's always a comfortable conversation. So he said, right, Microsoft ring you up and say, and we've got our annual conference and we'd love for you to speak. How much? So I was on the spot and I said to him, um, maybe two, three hundred pounds. And he started and I was like, what's, what's funny? And he said, Microsoft, annual conference. And you're saying, yeah, give me 200 quid and I'll do it. He said, they will hang up the phone on you. Well, you need to understand, stepping into a world of being a professional speaker, you need to add professional prices if you come with quality and things that people could take away from your talk. Now, over the years, I saw the difference my talks was making to people. So I knew that I had that thing, but I just had to sort of understand my price. So I said, well, how much should I charge? And he just simply said, right, add a zero. I said, what? He said, add a zero. He goes, do you know what? It's okay to get rejected. If someone calls through, you tell them that price and they say no, it's okay. If this is your passion, what you love doing, more opportunities will come. So don't be afraid to get let down or people to say no to you. That's something you've got to, you know, it's a mental barrier you put yourself in saying that you're not worth a lot. When truth be told, there's some speakers that get paid £50,000 to speak. No, there is money out there, but you just need to understand your worth. So I got an email come through and they wanted a half an hour talk and I was petrified to say such a big price. So I lowered, I think I said something like 1500 plus 80 <laughs> and I was sweating, my palms yeah. were so sweaty. I was shaking above the send button, I pressed send <laughs> and I shut my laptop. Thinking, what the heck have I just done? Then I got an email come through and I was still shaking. I opened it and they said, oh, perfect. Can you send us an invoice, please? I shut my laptop again and I went and sat on my stairs thinking to myself, what just happened? But that allowed me, again, to step out of that mental barrier that I was putting myself in and start to understand my worth. Absolutely. And then from doing that talk, the positive feedback and the ripple effect it had, more and more people would sort of hand out their cards and learn a bit more about me or if I could speak at this event or that event. So it started to help me understand the way that the professional speaking world went. And that all stemmed from asking for help when I thought I'd be able to do it all by myself. So again, if anyone's out there, you know, starting a new venture, starting a new business, speak to as many people as you can. Don't just take one person's opinion. Speak to maybe four, five, six, seven people and just to see where the themes are, what they're talking about and what best applies to you as a person or you as a brand or a company. You know, teamwork definitely makes dream work. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. And for anyone listening to this, obviously, you know, that is my motto as well. So me and my wife work very, very closely together to obviously pursue our dreams. And we always say every day teamwork makes a dream work. You had a great message there that asking for help is actually a sign of strength. Yeah. Like put it this way. If someone, if, if you help someone, it feels good. Of course. If someone helps you, 
it feels Absolutely. good. It's a win-win. I 100% echo those sentiments. And I just want to say, that story was incredible, by the way. And you should be very, very proud of yourself and for the amazing work that you've done, but also for the growth and the person that you've become. Because the reason I love that story is there are times where you faced imposter syndrome. There's times where you've had limiting beliefs in terms of knowing your self-worth. But then the growth of you growing outside of your comfort zone and so often throughout this podcast, so I'm 55 episodes in now, a guest will say something that I know I'll use forever. So there's been about six or seven moments throughout my journey of Find Your Voice. And this is yeah. one of those moments that is such a simple message that if I say the words, yes, amazing things could happen. Yeah, main word is could, it could happen. It's the risk you have to take. But then if you once you get there and it benefits you and you're feeling great about it, you got to remind yourself, I got that because I said yes, because I stepped out of that comfort zone. But when you push yourself to something which is easier to say no, if you say the word yes and you get those feelings where you feel nervous, you feel scared, you don't know what's going to happen, you're curious at the same time, you know, you have to have that little bit of curiosity as well. Even though you're scared, just I wonder what it's going to be like. Yeah. And then once you get to the other side, recognize the feeling that you've given yourself. If it feels good, times it by 10 in your head whoa, I can't believe I've done that. I didn't want to do that, but I did. I'm the man or I'm the woman. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. Once you feel good, you get that little jokey voice come out and it bigs you up like, yeah, all right, we're the, we're the ones. Mm, mm. And then it might fade again, but just remember that you've got that voice that's backing you. And that's, a, that's something that I talk about in, in my sessions is a deep dive into the voices in my head. Now, what I believe is I've got two voices in my head and some people may have more, mm -hmm. some people may have less. The two voices I have, one of them is called the dreamer. That's the voice that randomly says things to you like, I wonder what it would be like if, imagine if I ever had the chance to, how cool would it be if I could make? And it throws these dreams and they make us feel really good. But then usually once we dream that dream, that's when the other voice comes in, which I call the puller backer. And that's the voice that says, no, we're not good enough for that. We're not smart enough for that. We'll start gym or that diet uh, next month because it don't exist today. And it pushes things into the future just so it don't, you don't have to do it today. Now, what I decided to do one day was to just listen to that dreamer voice and see where it took me. So randomly, I was walking and a voice came to me. I wonder what it would be like to run a half marathon. Then straight away, it's like the other voice jumped in. No, actually, your lungs were quite bad. It could be quite dangerous. You could hurt yourself. And I stopped myself and I caught the thoughts. So I said, wait, that's the puller back of speaking. My dreamer voice came to me and it said, you know, half marathon. It came from somewhere. So something to do it. So I said, right, what do I need to do if I want to do a half marathon? I need to eat right. I need to exercise. I need to start running, turn that into a consistent pattern. And in time, I'll be ready for a half marathon. Come the day of the half marathon, I'm at the start line. And I'm the dream will come to me again. I wonder what's going to feel like crossing that finish line. And again, I'm, I'm, it's that buzz that I'm searching for that. I did it. I did it. So I'm envisioning it. I'm feeling buzzing. I'm, I'm good. As I'm running, the puller backer jumped in. <laughs> We're out of breath. Everything we've trained enough. Do you know what? Let's stop now. But we've trained super hard this summer. We'll come back even stronger next year. And I caught the thought. I said, wait, wait, wait. No, that's the puller backer trying to stop me. But the dreamer, you said you wanted to go to the finish line. I'm working with you. So let's go, let's go, let's go. When I got to that finish line, I got that intense body buzz that did it. I can't believe I did it. And I paid attention to what happened inside my head. And it's like that dreamer voice grew a bit stronger and bigger. The puller backer voice got slightly smaller. And over the course of time, and it's not something that happens overnight, of keep doing that, keep believing in yourself, keep achieving and keep bigging yourself up. It got to a point where my dreamer voice is humongous. I am best friends with myself. I love that. It's like I'm 
I'm not around me. So if negativity or people say bad things or don't believe in me, it picks off me. I don't absorb it or I choose to absorb it and turn that into an energy. If someone doesn't believe me, I chew it, I recycle it and I, I use it as a powerful push. It's like a turbo boost to make me want to do it even more. So I'm collecting these feelings of I did it, I did it, I did it. And that's helping me to work with myself more. Now my puller backer is very, very small. If it comes near me, I don't think we should do I flick it away because <laughs> yeah. there's a difference. There's two voices. If I follow one of them, it wants me to stay still and not do nothing. And maybe watch Netflix back to back to back to back to back. If I follow the other one, there's a feeling at the end of the line that I'm going to really enjoy. Once I get there, I feel more connected with myself because I made myself do that. Absolutely. You know, whether it's I had to go through some tough times to get there or I just had to sort of get out of a lazy zone to get there. As soon as I achieve it, I feel that buzz and I feel I hear that voice in my head saying, yes, you smashed it. And I feel good that I've made myself happy as well at the same time. So it's like a challenge that I always love is seeing what I could do, or how far I could push myself or stretch myself. And I think that all stemmed from you know, learning how to walk again, how to breathe again by myself, all those things, going on that journey. And it's especially something I want to share with the younger generation. Please do. You know, being, being in a, a place now where we get information at our fingertips, we see the best parts of people's lives as we scroll daily, wherever social media channel it is. Sometimes we see what other people have and think, why have we not got, why have I not got that? Why can't I do that? Why have I got that? I don't believe myself no more. When you don't believe in yourself no more, you jump on Fortnite for 12 hours. You know, you watch Netflix back to back. You go and do this and you start to distract yourself. You walk into the bus stop. Instead of being in your thoughts, you've got headphones on. You know, you're at a restaurant. As soon as my friends go to the toilet, I grab my phone to just flick through anything. We're constantly distracting ourselves and not spending that alone time just to see where our thoughts come from and what are the themes in our thoughts. What do we keep thinking back to? You know, because our brains will always keep telling us, you know what, I want to try that. I want to try that. But sometimes we pop out and we live just automatically. You know, we get up, go to work, come home, eat dinner, do whatever, and go to sleep. And it's the same thing. If you could spend more time with yourself and just to explore thoughts. And again, it's not an intense thing where you sit down and in the next 15 minutes, it will come to you. But just more aware of your thoughts. And what I do personally is I carry a little black book in my back pocket at all times. You're never without it. My thoughts come to me randomly and I don't know if it's due to what I went through or what, but my memory is quite weak. I find it hard to remember a lot of things. So if a thought comes to me, I pull out my little black book, I make a little note and I put it back in my pocket. Job done. Come to the day, I look through my notes of all these ideas or thoughts that I've had and I sort of cross out the ones that are rubbish. If there's a thought that sticks, I then explode that thought. Okay, who can help me? What do I need to do? What's the first step I need to take? How can I bring it to life? And I start to sort of map it all out. And then I put that into my week. Okay, on Monday, I'm going to work on just that one thing. Or on Tuesday, I'm going to work on those two things. On Wednesday, and I'm seeing my dream or that achievement come to life because every day I'm chipping away at it. And something, like I said, will take a year. Some things will take five years, 10 years. People will ask me, or they'll say, I can never do what you do. That hurts me the most because I could never do what I yeah, did before. Yeah. See my biggest fear, I hated it. I, if I'd be sick that day or I'd be in the toilet if it was my turn to present i didn't like it now it's my biggest passion i love it that feeling that butterflies before i used to think something dangerous or something bad is going to happen now i understand that feeling in a different way that's my turbo kicking in it's telling me right here's your energy that you need for this go and smash it so i wait for that butterfly feeling if it doesn't come i start getting annoyed at myself like why is it not here then i'll get off stage as i'm walking to the stage the feeling comes I'm like, right, here we go. Let's do it. So I've learned to sort of understand myself from within the feelings, the emotions, and use that in a positive way to push me 
rather than to hold myself back. So I mentioned it earlier that I've had moments in this show where I'm like, that's going to hit me. But I think just that five, six minutes there, that a message, not just to the youth, actually, I think it's a message for even people slightly older than the teenagers. We can all resonate with the dreamer and the pullerbacker in our head. We've all been through that moment. And I think in your adversity, in your biggest trauma in your life, where you had to reset yourself, you reset yourself to come back in such a stronger and such a better way where actually rather than be your own worst enemy because I tweet a lot and I tweet just my thoughts a bit like yourself so when I get a thought I tweet it or I put it in my notes and I I literally wrote something the other day that my biggest enemy is my inner me and it was because sometimes the way I speak to myself as an example isn't the way I would probably speak to a loved one if I've made a mistake or something and I think sometimes we just need to be conscious and acknowledge those thoughts and acknowledge those moments and actually give ourselves a bit more you know arm around the shoulder for example and become our best friends because just by doing that and just by you just sharing your whole story and you've said it a few times actually throughout this episode where you've kind of dehumanized yourself and and I say that with the utmost respect where you're saying listen guys there genuinely isn't nothing special about me I wasn't born with a unique ability to speak for example I'm, I'm an introvert by nature but one thing I will do is and it goes back to that quote which I think is absolutely fantastic is you're saying yes to opportunities because amazing things could happen. Yeah. So even from this episode, just go back and listen to those five minutes again and re- reset ourselves and stop distracting ourselves from being close to ourselves and just having that moment of reflection where we're like, who am I? What am I experiencing right now? What am I feeling right now? And what are the things that I want to experience moving forward? Then we can definitely become dreamers and we can at least acknowledge when those other thoughts come in because it's those other thoughts that stop us to then make us in 10, 15, 20 years down the line be resentful of the opportunities that we never said yes to. And I don't want anyone, especially if you listen to this show, to ever have that regret or the what if. Yeah, and you know, I say like this as well. The way I see life, it's like a conveyor belt. So imagine being at a supermarket, you know, you put your items on the, on the, on the near the till and it sort of slides towards the cashier. So at birth, we have people on our conveyor belt. They're called family. You know, they're ready with us through life. As we journey on this conveyor belt, moving slowly towards the other side, which is, you know, death, the people jump on our conveyor belt. We call those people friends. As we continue to journey, people jump off our conveyor belt. We lose friends, you know. Sometimes we lose friends for a good reason and it helps us to learn more about life, you know, so we always could take a positive with it. Sometimes we lose family along the way. I know we sort of fall out with family or lose loved ones. So people will continuously jump on and off your conveyor belt throughout your whole journey of life. Mm. The one thing you've got from very, the very start to the very end is the voices in your head. The way I see it, I want to start learning more about these voices and who I am and what I am best at doing and how I can keep excelling and improving. Mm. But that voice is going to be with me the whole time. If I fall out with myself, I'm slowing myself down. You know, it's hard for me to do things or be motivated to do things. If I keep bigging myself up and cheering my voices on, they want to start working with me as well. And they'll keep throwing me that ideas like, hey, what about this? Should we try this? Then I could probably say, nah, do you know what? That's not for us, but you know, we're part of that one. Thanks for coming up with that thought. And then, do you know what? But that one we come up with, I'm going to go for that one. Then when I achieve it or when we achieve it, you know, I big myself up and then the voices work with me even more. So that's helped me build confidence because I didn't used to be very confident. But again, being on a stage and speaking to thousands and thousands of people, you start to understand life in a different way because at the end of a talk, where it's a very human story that people can connect with, people start to share their stories with me. So the more I travel around, the more I'm hearing other people's stories, what they're going through, what they've been through, and it wows me and I get goosebumps every single time. 
So I've been collecting all these stories from hundreds and hundreds of people in my back pocket. So now if I come across someone that's going through a tough time or something, I might know someone else that's been through something similar. Yes. Then I've got things that I could share with that person to say, do you know what? Have you thought about this, that, or that? Or let me put you in touch with this person because they've da 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 da. So it's again connecting people with people and just understanding the human race more than just, hey, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. You? Yeah, good, thanks. Good weekend? Yeah, busy one. Good weekend? Yeah, quiet one. I want to go that extra layer with people and really start to understand emotions from people. You know, what helps people drive forward you know, when they've gone through you know, a life-changing situation? Which path did they go down and why did they choose those options? So just have that deeper conversation. And I think that's what's calmed me down a lot. It's allowed me to not judge people. Looking at people, we see face value. We just see what we see. We don't know what people have been through or what they're going through. You know, if not themselves, their family members or maybe a best friend or a loved one. So now when I see someone that's really aggressive or angry, I don't rise to that anger because they probably get people rising to that anger all the time. It's not helping them. I'd rather just surround someone with love, 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 love. And you know, that person slowly click like, okay, that person's not a threat or I don't have to be so daggery with that person. I can sort of let my guard down a little bit. And just, you know, being aggressive or angry, it burns more energy than being calm and loving. So I just try to help that person find a space where, you know, it's okay to just be their natural self, you know, and each to everyone out there, it's okay to be your unique natural self. The more you can express your unique natural self and stay with it, the more people will be drawn to you for being unique. Now, I think Skepta said it best, you know, in a way that really resonated with me. He said, if you're trying to do something, there's three stages that you go through. He said with himself, he made grime music, but he wasn't just a grime artist. He said that he loved music full stop. He wanted to try different directions. The first stage you go through is people will try to put you back in a box. They'll say, no, no, but you're a skeptic. You do grime, stick with grime, no tracksuit mafia, stay with trainers and tracksuits. Well, he said, but my, my voice, my inner voice is pulling me towards different type of music. So he said he had to work through that barrier of having people trying to put him back in the box, but him still pushing through. He said, then you get to stage number two. Stage number two is when people are on the fence with you. They can see what you're trying to do. They kind of get it, but they're not going to back you because it could fall through. So they'll sit at a distance and they'll just kind of analyze and watch what you're doing. You know, they won't like or share your post or anything like that. They're just watching. They can see something happening. He said that again, will mess with your brain because you're thinking, am I doing the right thing? Should I go back? And you'll start having this battle in your head. He said, but you keep pushing forward. He said, then you get to stage three and that's where the magic happens. Because that stage three, you know you're there because that's on a following or a fan base or whatever it be. And the people from stage one who tried to put you back in the box, they're singing and praising you, saying, oh, yeah, I know he's getting <laughs> yeah. that long. Oh, yeah, he's done that. I knew he was doing all of this stuff. And I've seen the whole journey. He said, that's when you know you've made it. So in life, there's going to be a lot of the viewers or listeners that are in one of those stages where they're self-doubting themselves, thinking, I don't know if I can or if I should. If your brain is telling you to do something, you know, you have to try your best to ignore voices around you because people will forever try to pull you left, right, up, down, inside out and put you in a place which is best for them to see. No, but if you stay true to what you love and give it time being the key thing, time and commitment and consistency, then you will notice that you will pull your following out of nowhere. It will just, it will gravitate towards you. And your biggest following won't be your friends and family. It won't, it will be strangers. They will give you the most love out of anybody. So go through the journey. And even if you're going two years, three years in, it's cool, keep going. 
for me to become a very confident speaker traveling the world, it wasn't an overnight thing. It's taken me 10 years in the making. But people don't see the 10 years in the making. They just see me on a stage now thinking, wow, he, he's confident or he can do this, this and that. That wasn't the case. I had to build myself up bit by bit. When I first started speaking, I was the um person. I would be like, um, um, and then um, um, and I noticed that. So I told myself, I'm going to get rid of ums. And it took me about five different talks to get rid of ums because I was consciously paying attention and I'd pause before I said um, and then I'd just carry on the sentence. So when I got the ums out of my system, I pat myself on the back like, yes, I'm no longer the um person. Then I noticed, what else am I doing wrong? When I was speaking to an audience, there'd be one person or two people that I'd keep going back to and I'd just be staring at that person or those two people. Then I'd glance up at the audience and I'd go back to those two people. And sometimes that could be uncomfortable for an audience member to be, you know, you're just thinking, why is that speaker just staring at me? Of course. So, I that. so I said, right, I need to start looking around the whole room rather than just that one area. So then again, it took me a good couple of goes. And then I started to naturally look around the whole room. And instead of looking at just one or two people, I'd look around the audience and instead of just looking at a sea of people, I'd pick out more faces because the more faces that I could look at and give eye contact to, people will see it as he's speaking directly to me. So they're taking in the message even more. So I started to do that. And over the course of 10 years of tuning myself to understand what I could do better, what I could do better, paying attention, like when I'm by myself to my thoughts and writing down notes, it's allowed me to understand where I want to take it next, what I want to really improve on. And me, the biggest thing, it made me invisible to myself on stage. So now if I go up onto a stage, I'm not paying attention to myself. Yeah. Before I would, because I'm I'm quite a stuttery person. I slur some words. That's just who I am. I've I've sort of it's taken that now. That's who I am, and I enjoy that person. So instead of stuttering and then going red and having a mind blank because I'm overthinking, I, if I stutter, I'm 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 not paying attention to me. I'm paying attention to the audience, their energy. Because as I'm speaking, I'm noticing if everybody is silent, staring at me, very very still. I've got them in my palm. I could slow down. And I can have people on the edge of their seats, just wondering what I'm going to say next. Then if I know someone's a bit fidgety, I know how to amp myself up a bit to grab attention again. So in a way, I feel like a conductor in an orchestra, you know, leading the energy in the room rather than myself. So um, I stand on stage and I'm very sort of calm and, you know, just wavy. And But the main thing is the audience's energy, not myself. I'm not important. It's the energy that the audience are feeling throughout the journey. And again, it's taken me years and years and years to craft that and be able to do that. It's not been an overnight thing. You know, if you think of anyone that you look up to who's been in a craft for a long time, you know, they're an expert at what they do because they pay attention to the little details of how they can improve bit by bit. If you think of Little Wayne, he used to write down his lyrics and, you know, go into the booth. He's been doing it so consistent over a space of 20 plus years mm. that now he doesn't even write down lyrics. He just goes in the booth, thinks of what he wants to say, and it just comes out. You can't do that just, you know, going in from the get-go. You have to build yourself up and be very committed to yourself to be able to get to those levels. So through life, you can unlock different levels to yourself based on the amount of energy you give to one thing. And the way that I explain it to, to kids, and I guess anybody could take it away in this way, Imagine you've got a playground and you've got a roundabout. And on this roundabout, there's a hundred people sitting on it. Your job is to spin this roundabout as fast as you can. Now, as you grab onto the roundabout, I'm going to pull it. You're feeling the weight of a hundred people. You're like, <laughs> yeah. you're trying to pull it. It's so, so difficult, but it's turning slightly. 
and then it gets you like from right to left and you push and then you grab one again and you, oh it's a bit easier and then you know push and then you grab it again and the more and more you do it the faster this roundabout is spinning to the point you could just flick it with your wrist and it just you know, continues that momentum that applies to anything you want to do in life if you want to play the guitar when you first start playing you're rubbish you don't know what you're doing that's like when you first start grabbing that roundabout it's very very difficult then you might you know get to a point where you can play happy birthday but it sounds a bit clunky blum 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 that's when you're pushing it but it's going a bit faster but there's still more momentum that can you know gain from this then you get to a point where you're the master and you can play happy birthday on an electric guitar and it sounds awesome that's when you've got to the point where you're spinning around about super fast and it becomes a bit easier because you've gone through that whole journey if you can apply that to any part of your life whether it's a relationship whether it's um you know, a craft you want to get involved in, an instrument, learning a language, learning how to do the splits, a wheelie on a bicycle, whatever it is, you'll go through that process. But you just got to trust the process and give yourself time. When you feel like you want to watch Netflix, no, no, let me pay attention. Let me just give myself half an hour or 20 minutes or 15 minutes or one hour practicing that craft so I can see myself getting better. And what I say to you, especially the younger kids, I'll say, how long do you play Fortnite in a day? You know, throw out numbers, three, five, seven, da, da, da. I said, right, say, for example, you've got three hours and you use Fortnite as an example. Imagine you've got a big TV in front of you. You're sitting down watching or playing Fortnite, but we've got a camera on a tripod watching you playing this game for three hours. Now, after you've played for three hours, we play back the footage. But what we do is we black out the screen so you can't see what is on the screen. What is your book doing for three hours every single day? It's sitting very, very still. And its thumbs are wiggling. That's all that's happening to your body for three hours every day. If you took one hour away from those three, so you still play a game for two hours, sitting very still wiggling thumbs, but then you dedicate one hour and you call that hour my hour. And every day, you, I don't know, you curl, curl a ball around the wall or you learn a bit more to do the splits. If you do that over a course of time of, say, a month, that's one hour every day for a month. That's 30 hours. If you do anything for 30 hours, you will see improvement. Absolutely. Imagine if you took it serious and you dedicated one year. That's 365 days, no, 365 hours working on something. You will see a huge improvement. When you go through that process, then you start to click. Okay, I get it now. I get how life works. I've got to dedicate myself to something. I can't just tickle it and expect to be great. No, it doesn't work like that. The more time you spend on it, the more of a professional you become at doing that thing that you enjoy. So just go on that journey with yourself. You know, see long term, not just short term. You'll get the short term wins along the way, but it's always the long game that is more exciting and has more of a lasting effect. Absolutely. What what a fantastic message, not just for the youth again, but for everyone else. It's about the process. And I think we're in a society, and you've touched on it briefly there, where people are literally looking for that viral coefficient. They're trying to just make that one viral video or that one viral piece of content and i'm like you're yeah. forgetting the process you're forgetting the journey and it's not about i mean at least for me it's not necessarily about what you acquire at the end it's more about the person that you become and maybe i can say that from having a bit more self-reflection now but it's a lesson that i think as you grow older obviously people will understand but mate i just want to say i mean the last 10 minutes again there was just so much value and i'm i'm trying to get my thoughts together now just to kind of summarize that very quickly so if i just take it backwards ever so slightly is I went on a very similar experience in Toastmasters and similar to yourself, I stutter my words. You've probably heard them on this episode. I put some of them together. I'm not even sure they're real words. And I used to make all these excuses. But one of the things I realized, and you touched on it perfectly, was 
when I speak now at Toastmasters and I've won a couple of awards which I was, I'm very very like proud of considering I could never speak before and I used to choke literally like Eminem did on 8 Mile is yeah, like a reference there <laughs> well actually I had a few more when you were saying your palms were sweaty I was thinking your, knee, <laughs> your knees weak arms are heavy I had them all mate for you <laughs> but another thing you said was Skepta's model of the three stages I'm actually going to write that out in the show notes so if anyone wants to go over that again but I think that is really really important because I've seen that happen in my own journey I've seen people sitting on the fence at stage two not liking my stuff but then come to stage three they're all jumping on board and they're saying I'll have a piece of that and you know you you (laughs) understand that and again it's a process and it's battling with your mind and making sure along the whole way you're best friends with yourself that is so so important honestly I could probably speak to you for about three hours because I just think there's so much valuable content but conscious of obviously the time and I'm not even sure my hosting platform is going to accept like a massive file size when I upload this episode I'm going to segue very quickly mate into what I call the fun part of the show as we go towards the end few questions so are you ready for that yeah let's do it so in case you haven't heard of this part before it's going to be 60 to 90 seconds where i'm going to ask you the most random questions just to give the listeners a flavor of just some of your tastes and topics and a little bit more about yourself right let's do it brilliant so one word answers or one sentence only mate and we're going to go in three two one if you could abolish one thing in the world what would it be um hate what are you secretly good at that nobody knows just paying super attention on my surroundings your biggest role model Eminem. What would you like to be remembered for? Leaving a very positive impact on people and changing lives. I love that. Your worst mistake this year? Buying a car too quickly and buying the wrong one. <laughs> Your favourite motivational speaker? I like the passion in Eric Thomas. If you could relive one day again, what day would it be? The day I went to see Eminem, I would have thought of a way of how I could sneak backstage and meet him in person rather than being in the audience. The ability to fly or be invisible? Invisible. The number one thing that annoys you? The negativity in people when they don't need to be money or fame money because it's not about being restricted and this is again looking at Eminem's life he can't go outside without people being drawn to him like a magnet so I'd rather have the money than you can use the money in whichever way to help people or help yourself at the same time I love that your favourite food is mama's bolognese love it <laughs> would you rather speak all languages or be able to speak to animals speak to animals I never understand them and they really weird me out because I, my girlfriend talks to them and I just don't get them. I don't understand what they're feeling or why they're looking at me like that. So it throws me off. So sometimes I have beef with animals for no reason, just by the look that they give me. So if I can understand them, we'll get along just fine. What song best describes your life? Died in your arms tonight. If you had an extra hour a day, how would you spend it? I'd spend it just in my thoughts. And finally, if you could sit with one person in the world, dead or alive for an hour, who would it be? And it can't be Eminem. Ah. Uh... <laughs> Uh, Papoose he's a New York rapper uh, my second favourite rapper because his lyrical ability and his thoughts are so intense and the way he structures and flips words is beyond incredible so I'd like to understand and just get speak with him to understand how his brain works so we're coming towards the end of the show now mate and the last two questions I ask is about reflection and legacy so I'm a firm believer that hindsight is a wonderful thing because upon reflection we can always think of ways to get to where we currently are quicker easier or with less heartache but i'm also a firm believer that the journey teaches us so so much so what i want to know is if you could go back to a younger anthony back in time but with all the wisdom and all the knowledge and everything that you know today and you could just whisper something in his ears what would you say invest in facebook <laughs> <laughs> no, i'll just tell myself 
what I've learned about the world, I'll tell myself yeah. to invest more, mm. not to spend on things, but spend on things that will help me in the long term. So invest more on assets rather than liabilities. 100%. Have an idea of what you enjoy doing, then put in that effort and that time, that currency towards that thing. And you really thank yourself in years to come. Absolutely. You sound like me, mate. So I am a property investor and that's pretty much where I put all of my money. So it's into assets to then pay for any liabilities. So that's great advice for anyone listening. And finally, so that does sadly bring us to the last question. And the last question, my friend, is about legacy. So if in 150 years time, science fails to save us and all that exists is a book. And this book is about you. It's about your life. It's about all of the amazing things that you've done in the world. Firstly, what I want to know is what would this book be titled and secondly what would the summary at the back tell us about you to entice the reader to pick it up that's a very difficult question and my outlook is quite quite a strange one or some people might be along the same lines but the way i see it is you know everyone will be or the people that leave a legacy i think it's temporary you know if the world has been around for billions of years say for example i don't know the names of any egyptian songwriters from back in the day you know but back in the day they were famous. They were the ones that you know we thought would go on forever and ever. So for example, I don't know Michael Jackson. In a thousand years from now, will people still have interest in someone that lived a thousand years ago, like Michael Jackson? Mm. Or will there be a hundred different Michael Jacksons within that time? So our Michael Jackson, you know, would no longer be relevant to the people that currently live then. You know, we're seeing that transition now with the younger generation, or every generation. The younger generation will never have the same interest in which the older generation did. They will have their interest for their time or period that they are alive so i think even if i was to leave a legacy in time whether it be a hundred or a million years it would fade to very like a very small place so i'm not too fussed about the legacy that i live uh, leave it's more about how i impact people whilst i'm alive and change as many lives as i can whilst we are all alive during this time that we're in right now but seeing as it's the last question, I just wanted to say one last thing to the audience listening. Um, I'm going to take you on a very, very short journey through another section of my life where I, you know, I went to a very low place. I won't explain wh- what happened or what led to that, but I'll explain sort of what happened to my mentality and how I dug myself out of it. So something happened and I felt that I went from a happy 10 to a, a, a sad 2. I felt like I was in a place that I've never been in before. I was upset, I was angry, I was depressed, all these things. I was eating more junk food, I was giving up on all the little things, and I felt myself sliding down a slippery slope. Now, I started to notice it was getting quite serious. I was trying to get more speaking jobs in. I sort of was giving up on a lot of things. So I had to pull an emergency meeting. That meeting, I brought three people, me, myself, and I. When no one was home, I went upstairs, I got this big mirror in my room, and what I did, I interviewed myself like in the mirror it sounds crazy mm-hmm. but this genuinely really really helped me and the first thing i said to myself was any answer i give i'm not going to lie because if i lie i'm lying to myself and i know i'm lying so that don't make sense be truthful how are you feeling and i said okay i've been angry upset sad depressed okay depressed you've not used that word before dig deeper what, what, what are you feeling i said well my stomach keeps tensing for no reason I find that my thoughts keep spiraling. I just keep going around the same thing for hours and hours and hours. If I'm present with my friends, I'm present, but I'm not present mentally. I'm not there. My mind is somewhere else. Yeah. I can't think straight. And I just sort of named everything that was happening to my body. And I said, right, how is everybody else feeling? And I said, well, they're just getting on with life, I guess. 
So it's just me that's affected. Yes. Mm. What would the next six months look like if I continued this pattern? I said, I'm going to be overweight. Um, myself, my confidence is going to be super low. I'm going to find it harder to get onto a stage and speak because if you're trying to give positivity, but you're in a negative place, it's harder to sort of transition that out to the audience. Okay, what will one year look like? And I stood there and I thought, I, I have no idea. I just know it's going to be bad. So do I want to change? Yes. Do I understand I'm not going to be happy tomorrow? And it may take me half a year. It may take me a year to get back to a happy place. Well, yeah. Are you willing to go on that journey? Yeah. Like being in this like, low place. So I said to myself, what do I need to do? So I understood that I've been knocked from quite a high place to a very low place. So it's quite a big jump if I'm trying to jump back to happiness. If I try to jump there too quick, it's easier for me to wobble and fall again. What I need to do is build that foundation again and strengthen myself up floor upwards. So I said, I noticed that I'm giving up on very simple things. So what I'm going to have to do is achieve very simple things to start off with. So I said, what I'm going to do every day, I'm going to make my bed the neatest I've ever made it. So if I went outside, had a bad day, come home, open the bedroom door, I would see that the bed was super neat and I'd say to myself, you did that. And then I times it by 10 in my head. So I start being silly with it going, oof, no creases. Is that you, Mr. Bennett? All right, all right. And I've noticed that the little jokey voice would come out for a split second, mm. but then it would fade again. But that was my reminder that it's still there. So then I started to want to do a little bit more. So I set myself a press-up challenge. Before I leave the house, I'm going to do as many press-ups as I can, and I've, I've got to hit this number. If I don't hit that number, I've got to go get some spinach, get strong, wait a bit, and then try again and again and again until I hit that number. Then I could leave. And when I hit that number, I'd get that body buzz that, yes, I did it. And then that jokey voice would come out a bit more. And I'd try to keep it out for a bit longer. And it'll stay for a bit longer, then it'll go away. So then I knew that I was like, again, building that character back up, that voice in my head back up where it hit a very, very low. I started to wanting to run again. So I noticed I was putting on weight and I didn't like the way my belly was wobbling as I was running and walking. <laughs> so I knew that by me walking to my drawers and getting my shorts and then walking to my cupboard to get my t-shirt, I was at such a low, I could talk myself out of it, walking five steps. So what I decided to do, get all my running stuff and put it in one pile by the door. So as I wake up, I sort of get into my running gear with minimal thoughts as possible to talk me out of it and I leave the house. If I was to run 5K, I'd make sure I ran 6K, just a little bit more, more of a push. So I get that buzz that, oh, yes, I did it. Times 10, the voice came back out. So then with my speaking career, I, again, like I said, I wasn't contacting people or I was contacting maybe one person a day. I decided to put all my energy in it, 110%. I was calling maybe 10, 15 people a day. I was emailing 50, 60, 70 people a day, different companies, conferences, just trying to see when the next event was coming up and if I could you know, be a speaker. And I kept this whole pattern happening consistently for about three weeks. And on the third week, I received an email and it said, Hi, Anthony. Just want to say thank you for your email. We've been on your website. We love what you do. And we want to fly you out four nights accommodation, speaking in front of this many people. And that one was my biggest ever talkers to 1,500 people in Australia. Wow. So my biggest opportunity came from me being in the lowest of my lows, but just working with myself bit by bit consistently and keeping it there. And it's like the universe just said, you know what? here's an opportunity go grab it you, mm. you've earned that and for me going to australia what i told myself was it doesn't mean i've made it it doesn't mean the super duper speaker it just means that i've got a great opportunity but it's temporary 
So I understood that maybe a week after coming back from Australia, I'll still be trying to reach out to get more speaking, working and all these things. So what I told myself was, whilst I'm out there, absorb everything from the smell of the stage, how tight people hug out there, what people like to enjoy talking about in Australia, what the wildlife looks like, absolutely everything. So when I come back home, if I'm over in a low place, I've got so many collective thoughts that I can reflect on and just talk to myself and be like, we actually made that happen by doing this, 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 and that. So anyone out there that is in a low point at the moment, please understand that it's, it's temporary and you can and will get out of it and you will be laughing till your stomach hurts again. Because again, we go through different stages and there's three different stages that we can go through. Number one is when we're walking towards a hurricane. Now that's when something bad is going to happen in the near future. We can see it's going to happen. We can't avoid it. We can't stop it. It's just we're walking towards it. It don't feel great. Stage two is when we're in the eye of the storm and when life just looks like it's a complete mess. Everywhere we look, it's just dark. And it's, it's not a pleasant place to be. Stage three is when you're walking away from the hurricane with your head held up high. That's when you've achieved something and you're blowing and you're buzzing. When you're in that stage, nobody can tell you nothing because it bounces off you. You don't care. You're in such a happy place that you just seen the world so colourful. Now, when we're in any of those stages, we tend to think it'll be long term or forever. When we're in a super low place, we think the whole world is just a low place that we just hate being in and all these negative things. When we're buzzing, hey, I love the place. I love the planet. I love life, everything. We think it's going to be forever thing, but we continuously through life keep bouncing from stage one, two, three, back to two, back to one, back to three, back to two. So what I've learned in my journey is life doesn't start low and get better and better and better. And it doesn't go being really happy and getting worse, worse and worse. It's like a heartbeat. We go up, down, up, down, up, down. The sooner we can understand that we will go through low points and high points throughout our lives, it won't just be happy, 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 happy. And it won't just be sad, 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 sad. So understand the bouncing pace of life, then the more we can appreciate the low times as much as the, you know, the high times. And that's something that I appreciate. When I was ill, when I was sick in the hospital, I thought, why is this happening? What's, what's going on here? Why, why out of everybody's, is it just me? Yeah. Now, back and coming out of all of that, I can appreciate going through that. I'm not going to lie, I don't want it to happen again, but I can appreciate it's talk. The second low, which I just described now, again, I could have been like, oh, why me, all of these things. But after I've come out of it and I got that massive opportunity, now I can appreciate that low. And at the same time, it's built me stronger, made me more resilient. And I feel like it will be harder for me to get, you know, drop down to a, such a low because I've been there and I know sort of what it takes to build myself back up. So in a way, I, I enjoy my lows as much as my highs. It's not just the highs that I chase. I see the lows as a place where I can grow, where I can learn about myself and connect myself with myself. So give yourselves time mm. and Keep patting yourself on the back. Keep bigging yourself up. Every small achievement is one step closer to where you want to be or what you want to do. Absolutely. I absolutely love that. And it's one of the premises behind this show. And one of the themes that I always try and say is that it's in our adversity where we have the opportunity to basically have our biggest wins and open up our biggest gifts if we allow it to. And you just demonstrated that in those two main areas of your life. And I think there's such an important lesson there as well with the heartbeat analogy. If we can just grasp that concept of life isn't just always going to keep going up or isn't always going to keep going down it will allow us to appreciate both the lows and the high times anthony your level of like self-awareness sorry trying to get my words out now 
is actually unbelievable. I think we're in a society where many of us are so scared to be by ourselves, myself included at one point, whereas now I'm in a much better place where actually I can just spend a whole day by myself. And I think if we can all just encourage each other to have that conversation of me, myself and I, which I thought was fantastic, by the way, I've actually written notes here. And again, I'll try and put these in the show notes because I just think it's tangible takeaways that if anyone is struggling right now, they can take it away. Um, I think your story is absolutely fantastic. I want to make sure that listeners can obviously follow your journey and learn from you. So what is the best places that they can reach out and then learn from some of the amazing stuff that you're teaching right now? Sure. So my website is anthonyinspires.com. So Anthony spelled A-N-T-H-O-N-Y, inspires.com. And I'm on social media, so Instagram, Twitter. If you search at I am Ant Bennett, and Bennett is spelled B-E-N-N-E-T-T. So I am Ant Bennett. And yeah, if you want to send me DMs or message me, if I can help anyone in any way, reach out. You know, I'm, I'm happy to help people. So yeah, please do. I appreciate that. Well, I'll be the first person sending you DMs and Instagram friend requests <laughs> because I feel grateful that you've come on this show. You've helped not just me and some of the stuff that you said, but you're going to help so many people who come across this episode as well. So I'll definitely be supporting you as much as I can. A shout out to Winston. Absolutely. Absolutely. And us in touch. You know, Winston is an incredible person. So as well, check out Winston's story as well. Absolutely. And again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. He's helped me bring on another guest to the show. He's helped you now be able to help some of the listeners of this show. It's about let's just try and help and work collectively together towards an empowering movement. I will be putting all these show notes in and all the details of your website and all your social media handles i want to thank you for taking time out of your day for uh, sharing your story and i want to thank everyone at home thank you for listening pleasure and remember this podcast is absolutely free so all we ask in return is for you to share this with a friend and drop us a five-star review over on itunes have an awesome day